1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because of His great mercy, He has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Church, He is risen. He is risen indeed. Let us pray. Lord, we love You. Thank You for the gift, joy, and blessing of being able to gather this morning in fellowship and worship on this Resurrection Sunday as we are reminded of Your great mercy that gives, us rise, that gives rise to the hope that lies within us. May our time be honoring unto You and bring You glory as Jeff brings the message this morning. Let His words be Your words and soften our hearts so that the truths of Your holy and inspired Word would convict and edify us and impact our hearts and lives. And all God's people said, Amen. Thank you, Alan. You may be seated, folks. Well, good morning. Good Resurrection Sunday morning. Great to see your smiling, worshiping faces. This morning, we're going to look at the resurrection of Jesus. Um, I'm going to share with you three things. Essentially, why does the resurrection matter? What on earth are we doing here? Why are modern people in the 21st century gathered in a converted gymnasium to worship a king that we believe was raised from the dead? If it hasn't happened, then we, as Paul said, are to be pitied above all men because we have believed something just silly. So why would we, thinking people, gather in this room to celebrate this event? I also want to give you some evidence for the belief in this event. This is not just some silly thing that we believe or some religious thing that, that we've concocted or that we believe. There actually is good evidence for believing in the resurrection. And lastly, what I want to tell you is how you can access resurrection power and life in your own life right now, today. When I was a kid, I experienced Jesus' life-giving resurrection power when I was nine years old. I was sitting in a church service in Goodson, Virginia, at Faith Baptist Church. And I was sitting there, and I was nine years old. Granted, I hadn't had that many years of sinning, <laughs> but I was a bad kid. And I sat on the front row, and I watched Pastor Scott. He was our preacher. He was our senior pastor. And I watched him with tears in his eyes plead with us to be saved I remember staring at his glistening bald head as he just sweated and wiped the sweat off of the top of his head. I remember his face turning beet red as he preached this message and told us about God and our sin and about heaven and hell and our need to repent. And at the end, I did not respond to his invitation for salvation. I just thought about the message. And I went home and I couldn't get the message out of my mind. I, I laid in bed all night and I stared at the ceiling, and all I could think about was the fact that I was a sinner. And I needed to confess my sins to Jesus. And Jesus had died on the cross for my sins, and he had risen from the dead. He had been raised by God from the dead so that I could have new life. And as I cried those sins out, the Holy Spirit washed me clean through and through. Now, I have shed many tears over the years. Many tears over suffering and loss. Tears so powerful, suffering 
and crying so powerful that it, it has made my body shake. But nothing like what I did when I was nine years old because I've never been so cleansed from sin. And I just knew from that moment on that I was saved. And in that moment, I exchanged my ashes for his beauty. I exchanged my sorrow for his joy. I exchanged my death for his life. And all of that was possible because Jesus Christ was slain on the cross. He took the punishment that would have been mine, and he was raised to life never to die again. Amen? <clears throat> so why does the resurrection matter? What difference does it make? Well, consider it for just a second. If Jesus has not been raised, then the world is corrupt. I know you've figured that out so far. And the arc of history bends toward injustice and evil, and it always will. If Jesus has not been raised, then the nations will always go to war. They will always fight over territory and resources, killing each other in the process. The nations will never know true and lasting peace. It just always will be that way. If Jesus has not been raised from the dead, then the earth will eventually spin itself out. The actual physical world will spin itself out. Running out of energy as our sun dies, a heat death and the coldness and the darkness of space. That's coming. If Jesus, more importantly, has not been raised from the dead, then men die and they always will. We go into the grave and we stay there. We have no hope for eternity, no hope for life after this life, and no hope for life after the afterlife. No hope for a resurrection at the end of the age when Jesus returns. But if Jesus has been risen from the dead, then the death and the destruction and the discord and the spiritual and moral darkness in this world will someday be no more. The King of kings and the Lord of lords will return to reclaim his world, his lost world, and all those who have believed in him. If Jesus has been raised, then every person who names Christ as Lord and Savior will be ushered into the full rays of heaven's glory. Don't you want that when you die? And there we will have an expectation at the end of the age when he returns with us that we will get brand new resurrected bodies and a new heaven and a new earth to replace this old one. What a great promise. Paul put it this way in 1 Thessalonians 4, 15 through 18. He says, for we say this to you by a word from the Lord. Now, this, we didn't invent this. This came from Jesus. We who are still alive at the Lord's coming will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout and the archangel's voice and with the trumpet of God and the dead will literally get up out of their graves. The dead in Christ will rise first. <clears throat> And then we who are still alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Let me ask you, does this encourage you today? Are you encouraged by these words, or do these words scare you? Are you worried about these words? Be encouraged. Jesus' resurrection matters because if he has not been raised, then death reigns, and it just always will. Number two, what evidence is there for the resurrection of Jesus? So, is this a rational belief? Is it reasonable for us to believe that a rabbi in the first century from Nazareth, from nowhere Nazareth, got up out of the grave, that God raised him from the dead, and he walked out of that tomb? Well, I want to suggest to you that there are five good evidences for Jesus' resurrection. 
And I want to give them to you in the form of an acronym. It's the acronym RISEN. Okay, RISEN, to help us remember the key facts surrounding Jesus' resurrection. The first letter in our acronym is R, for reluctance, or reticence. Reluctance. The Jews did not believe in a dying and rising Messiah. Nobody believed this message. Even the disciples were reluctant to believe it, as we'll see. And why is this so important? Well, the cross. We'll begin with the cross. Every ancient culture had some form of crucifixion as a method of execution. The Assyrian culture, Thracian, Indian, Celtic, Germanic, Greek, Persian. They all had some form of, of execution by crucifixion. But the Romans had perfected it. The Romans figured out how to, how to torture you longer than any other culture on a cross. And more than that, it was not just a device that they used to execute you to, to carry out the sentence of capital punishment. It was a psychological deterrent. When you saw thousands of your countrymen hanging on crosses on the hillside, the message was to you, uh, don't rebel against Rome. This is what you'll get. But more than that, they made crucifixion a social stigma. <clears throat> It was like something like, in our culture, pedophilia. I mean, it was a social stigma. If you had a family member who had been crucified, then you were shunned in society. If you had been crucified, no one would ever remember your name. Nobody remembers the name of a crucified man. And how ironic it is that the most famous man in the history of the world was crucified on a Roman cross, which was designed to wipe him and the memory of him off the face of the earth. How ironic. And Jesus shocked his followers. He told his followers, you can't be my disciple unless you pick up your cross and follow me. He said that in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. All record that he said that. And at the time, that was an unintelligible message to the, disciple, to the disciples. It didn't make any sense. That was crazy talk. The Messiah is not going to the cross. They knew their scriptures, Deuteronomy 21, 23. What does it say? It says, cursed is anyone who hangs on a cross. Cursed is anyone who hangs on a tree. And what it meant for the Jew to be cursed is that you're cut off from God and you're cut off from his people. But they missed it. This is just what their prophets had prophesied. Their prophets said that this is what the son of David would go through. Isaiah 53, we've met, read it many times over the last couple of weeks. Let me just read you a couple of passages here from it. He says, surely he, that is the son of David, took up our pain and bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him, and afflicted. So the first thing we note there is that the punishment that he received, we considered that something God did to him. And what Isaiah is saying is, I'm a good Jew, and we recognize in Deuteronomy 21, it says, cursed is anyone who hangs on a tree, but he was pierced for our transgressions, and he was crushed for our iniquities, and the punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds, we are healed and restored to relationship with God. And here's how it ends. And after he suffered this crushing, this piercing, this punishment, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many. He will bear their iniquities. This was written about the Messiah 700 years before Jesus was born. 
And so Jesus saw this in the scriptures and he told the disciples, unless you take up your cross and you follow me, you cannot be my disciples. This message was shocking because no Jew would have expected the Messiah or the Christ to die by crucifixion. It was unthinkable. The whole idea is just an outlandish, lewd scandal to the Greco-Romans too. Look at what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 22 through 24. He says, Jews demand signs. They want miracles. And Greeks look for philosophical wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and he is the wisdom of God. And so the Greeks and the Romans, they want wisdom. They want philosophy, good philosophy, good respectable philosophy. And the Jews, they want signs. They want miracles. And he says the sign, the miracle is Jesus Christ crucified. Jesus' resurrection is the best explanation of the sudden and inexplicable belief and the bold proclamation that Jesus the Messiah had been shamefully executed as a common criminal on a Roman cross and that God had raised him from the dead. The second letter in our risen acronym is I for initial eyewitnesses of the empty tomb. Initial eyewitnesses of the empty tomb. Well, there were lots of eyewitnesses in the first century. Paul mentions 500 of them. I'll just put a passage up here, 1 Corinthians 15. He says this, after that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. But I want to focus on those initial eyewitnesses. Why are they so important? So, yes, there were many eyewitnesses in the first century, about 500, but what about the first ones? Who were they? Do you remember? The women. Why is this detail important? Because women's testimony was not considered reliable in the first century. Sorry, women. It wasn't supposed to be that way, but it was that way. Yet all four Gospels agree that Jesus first appeared to them. Luke 24, 1 through 8. Luke says, on the very first day of the week, very early in the morning, the women took the spices they had prepared and went to the tomb. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb, but when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were wondering about this, suddenly two men in clothes that gleamed like lightning stood beside them. In their fright, the women bowed down with their faces to the ground, but the men said to them, why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here. He is risen. Remember how he told you he was still with you when he was still with you in Galilee. The Son of Man must be delivered over to the hands of sinners, be crucified, and on the third day be raised again. And then they remembered his words. They recalled that, yes, he talked about that. We didn't know what he was talking about at that time. Now, all the Gospels record this detail. Why? Why would they? If you're a first century or a second century scribe and you're trying to concoct a story that you want people to believe, you don't take the person who is the lowest status in society whose testimony is not accepted in court and make them the first witnesses. You don't do that. These are not the first people you would think to put into the story. Women's testimony was considered invalid in a court of law. In fact, in their own divorce proceedings, their testimony could be invalidated if their husband who was divorcing them just contradicted their story. That's all that was necessary. 
And so if you're making up a story about a risen rabbi, you don't contrive a detail like this and then make it so critical to the account that you included in all four of your authorized accounts of Jesus' life. But it wasn't just the women, it was also the disciples. You know what the Sanhedrin, the Jewish Supreme Court, you know what they refer to the disciples as? They call them the idiotes. Now, we get our English word, idiots, from that word. Now, in the first century, it didn't mean idiot. It just meant uneducated. It meant unrefined. It meant a person who has not gone through uh, the Jerusalem Academy. The Jerusalem Academy was sort of the Harvard or the Oxford of this world, and these guys had graduated from the Community College of Galilee. And so they also, as blue-collar men, as tradesmen, as fishermen, as tax collectors, their status is very low. And their testimony, while accepted in court, is not as good as someone who had gone through this education. And so the Sanhedrin can't believe this. The Sanhedrin says the Messiah revealed himself to the idiotes. But they also are predisposed to unbelief. The disciples do not believe the story either. They are the first people who don't believe the story, actually, even though Jesus has repeatedly told them this. Now, the women come back and report to the 12 who are hiding in an inner room. Before they get to the upper room, they're in an inner room, and they're hiding. They're hiding from the Jewish authorities. They don't want to get caught. They're full of fear. And the women come back and report, he's risen. We saw him. And the 12 disciples, the 11 that are there, they say, well, I mean, not, no, we don't believe that, right? And then Jesus appears to them, and they do believe, but somebody is missing. Who is it? Doubting Thomas. Doubting Thomas. Yes, we call, poor guy. I mean, they're all, the disciples were doubting, but Thomas was not there. He was out paying bills or whatever, getting lunch. And he gets back, and the disciples tell him, we saw him. He appeared to us right here in this room He's alive. And this is what Thomas says. In John chapter 20, he says, But he, Thomas, said to them, Unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. A week later, his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. And though the doors were locked, Jesus came and just stood among them and said in Aramaic, Shalom, I like him. Peace be with you. And then he said to Thomas, put your finger here. See my hands? Reach out your hand and put your hand into my side. Stop doubting and believe. And then Thomas exclaimed, my Lord and my God. And then Jesus told him, because you've seen me, you believe. But blessed are those who have not seen, and yet they have believed. The resurrection of Jesus is the best explanation for Jesus first appearing to women and to doubting disciples people of low stature in this world, and people who were predisposed to not believe this sort of thing. The third letter in our risen acronym is S for the success of the early church. The stratospheric success of the early church. Well, big deal. There have been lots of successful religions, haven't there? Hinduism has been around an awful lot of a long time. So has Judaism, by the way. Lots of religions have lasted for a very long time, and many have died out. What about the global success of Islam? So how can this be, point be evidence for Jesus' resurrection? Here's why. Because it's the unique context in which the claim was made. 
It's the church's success against all odds, against every reason to the contrary. No Jew would invent a religion that involved a crucified, shamed, cursed Messiah who personally rose from the dead to atone for our sins. That just wasn't what they were thinking the Messiah was coming to do. And when we look at the comparative disadvantages they had as a sect, as a group of people within Judaism, they lacked prestige, political power, military might. They had no influence on the culture. They had no resources. They had nothing. Their success cries out for an explanation. What is it? Here are just a few examples of cults that Rome destroyed, obliterated. The Bacchanals. How many of you have heard of the Bacchanals? Here's why. Because <laughs> Rome didn't want them around. And in 186 BC, the Senate in Rome passed a bill, and they decided to kill them. And they started beheading them and crucifying them, and the worshipers of Bacca disappeared in history. What about Sybil, Isis, Serapis, Mithra, Dionysus, the Druids? I could go on. The list just goes on. Listen, this is what Rome does well. They build roads, they're great engineers, and they destroy cults, new religions that they don't want around. And the Christian faith was specifically targeted by Roman emperors like Nero in the mid-first century who persecuted Christians to the death in gruesome fashion. Who on earth would want to join that group? Who would want to share their fate? Eminent Roman historian Tom Holland observes that the Roman populace would have viewed the message of a crucified God-man to be scandalous, obscene, grotesque. And while Nero was obsessed with immortality and he built many buildings and erected many golden effigies in his honor, burning Christians as human torches for dinner parties, throwing them to wild beasts in the Colosseum for amusement. He could not have imagined the wild success of the Christian faith. The Christian faith becomes, according to Tom Holland, the very foundation of Western civilization. Emperor Decius and Diocletian, those two emperors attempted to eradicate the Christian faith from the face of the earth. But there were more Christians when those campaigns were over than when they had started. Holland states that while Nero's efforts and works and all of those of the Caesars would crumble into the dust of history, Jesus' legacy would live on and thrive and take the world by storm. And here we sit. What best accounts for this stratospheric success against all odds? They have no social standing. They have no political clout. They have no military power, nothing, no resources. In a world where all of this really, really matters. So how could a cult like this have even gotten off the ground? There is no earthly reason for the Christian faith to exist at all. The fourth letter in our risen acronym is E for early creeds. Now, some skeptics have attempted to explain Christian belief in the supernatural and Jesus' miracles and his resurrection from the dead by saying, well, a second century group of Christians got together and they just concocted these stories, they contrived these stories, and then they read them back into the first century. Jesus, they say, was just an illiterate yokel from backwater Nazareth. Jesus could not do anything that you see him doing in the Gospels, much less raise himself from the dead. Nonsense, they say. Here's the problem with that. We have an early Christian creed that goes back to within five years of Jesus' death. 
And it is an early Christian creed that affirms Jesus' crucifixion and his resurrection from the dead. I want to read it to you. Paul preserved it in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. He says, For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, first things, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. Verses 3 and 4 are not Pauline. Paul wrote those words, but he didn't, they weren't from him, he borrowed them. And scholars have noted that based on Galatians 1, his story in Galatians 1 about going back and conferring with Peter, James, and John right after his conversion, and based on this quote out of Mark, they have been able to find that this creed, this song, this hymn, this is something you would sing, not something you would compose in written form, goes all the way back to Peter, James, and John. It goes all the way back to within five years of Jesus' death and his supposed, his alleged resurrection. So the stories could not have been invented in the second century. They're very early. Belief in Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection was not a later belief imposed on an earlier form of Christianity. No, it was an original belief of the earliest Christian community, of the earliest followers of Jesus. The fifth letter in our risen acronym is N for no, plausible alternative explanations. There are just no good competing explanations. Now, what I have laid out for you over the last few minutes <clears throat> is what we call an inference to the best explanation or arguments to the best explanation. An inference to the, be <clears throat> excuse me, an inference to the best explanation is an approach to evidence that seeks to assess available sources and evidence and then to assemble plausible explanations, possible explanations, what we call explanatory lab options, and then confer best explanation status on the interpretation that best accounts for all or most of the data. Now, that's a very forensic definition, but let me give you an illustration of this. Suppose you're on an epic hike. How many of you are planning on hiking one of our epic trails and camping? How many of you plan on camping and hiking? How, how many do that? I'm in awe of you, actually. You hike all day, you get to your site, and you set up camp with your friends. You fish in the stream for your dinner. You eat and tell stories by the campfire. Then you turn in, it's lights out. You hear something while you're trying to sleep in your tent, something rustling around in your camp at night, but you are so exhausted that you just sleep through it. And surely you should not do that. <laughs> And the next morning, you and your friends awaken to mayhem in your camp. You see trash and resources just scattered everywhere. Fresh tracks with big, long claws in the tracks. A pile of scat. You look closer, you see undigested nuts and, uh, and fish bones. And then you see fresh claw marks on the trees next to your camp. Now, you have to make a deduction from the available evidence. You have to choose between possible explanations and plausible ones. Now, it's possible that your friends are pranking you, and they got out at 2 o'clock in the morning, and they just set the whole thing up to make you think that a bear was in the camp. That is possible. It's also possible that it was a pack of wolves or maybe another animal. Sure, that's possible. Unlikely. It's also possible that you're hallucinating the whole thing. You just ate some bad fish or picked and ate from the wrong berry tree the previous evening. So you're just hallucinating all of it. So all of those are possible explanations of the evidence. 
But the assembled evidence also has a context. You know you're in bear country. You know you're in bear country, so you reject possible explanations for the most plausible one. A bear was in your camp. That's your conclusion. And skeptics have also attempted to explain the evidences around Jesus' resurrection. And so they've given several. I'm leaving off of this list that I'm going to give you right now the ones that are just silly beyond belief. They're they're not even possible, I think. But here are the ones I think are, are possible. The stolen body hypothesis. If you were here Friday night, then you heard us read the passage where the Pharisees said to Pilate, let's post guards at the tomb because his disciples said he was going to raise from the dead, or Jesus said he, this crazy man said he was going to raise from the dead, and what if the disciples come at night and try to steal the body? They were the first ones who made this accusation. But who has the incentive to steal Jesus' body? The disciples don't. They don't even initially believe it when they're told by the women. And also, the first recorded accusation of the Sanhedrin saying that the disciples will steal the body, admits that the tomb was empty. The tomb is empty. What about the misplaced body hypothesis? Well, scholars are are nearly unanimous in their belief that Joseph of Arimathea was a historical figure, and Jesus indeed was buried in his borrowed tomb, in his family tomb. So what some scholars have tried to say is that, well, maybe they buried him in one tomb, and then they just went to another one that was empty. Nonsense. I haven't been to Carrie's family burial, burial plots where her family are buried in North Idaho in 15 years. And I could drive there right now and find them all within 10 minutes. I don't even know the name of the cemetery. I just know where they are. And this was Joseph of Arimathea's family tomb. He knows where his tomb is, right? What about legendary tradition? Well, again, we ruled that out because the tradition seems to go back to the mid-first century at least and was believed and preached by the earliest community of the believers. What about intentional deception? This one really is a possibility. Now listen, lots of people believe things that turn out to be false, and they believe them sincerely, and they believe religious things that turn out to be false. If a person straps a bomb vest to themselves and they blow up a bunch of innocent people in a bus station or a cafe, They sincerely believe it, right? But they're also sincerely wrong. God is not going to reward them with 72 virgins. That is not, I I promise you, that is not going to happen. So that's just belief in something false. And a person is willing to die for something they really believe to be true. But no one will die for what they know to be a lie. Who would die for what they know to be a lie? And the 12 and the 500, they're in a position to falsify it. They're in a position to say on pain of death, when the persecution and the heat gets too hot, they're, they're in a position to say, uh, I, I'm, I'm confessing he did not rise from the dead. And listen, he said it's 500. You would think in a group of 500 people, someone would crack. Listen, I raised four children. And, and invariably, my four kids, they would get into trouble And we would have to haul him into the living room and line him up there in the living room and say, okay, who broke it or who punched him? Whatever the the offense was, and everybody is tight-lipped at first. No one will fess up. And then daddy has to say, okay, spankings are going to commence if someone doesn't fess up. And just like that, one of the little culprits, her name is Carly, would always fess up. (laughs) 
And she would always say it was Hayden. And usually, <laughs> it was Hayden, actually. <laughs> this is, we're talking about 500 people. Someone is going to give up the truth if this didn't happen, okay? So intentional deception. The 12 were in a position to falsify it. No one has any motivation to create a new world religion. And so the competing explanations, these are possible. But given the established facts and the background information, folks, we're in bear country here. The most plausible explanation is that Jesus Christ has risen from the dead. That's why he's not here. And so to recap, we have the reticence or the reluctance to embrace a crucified Messiah by early Jews and Romans. We have the initial eyewitness testimony preserved in the Bible by people of very low status, people you would not insert into the story if you were inventing it. We have the meteoric rise, the successful rise of the early church, its explosive growth and transformation of the Roman Empire. This cries out for explanation. We have the early creedal statements that go all the way back to the original believers, and we just don't have any good explanations otherwise. And one last thing. How can I experience the resurrection life of Jesus today? How can you? You can experience Jesus as your risen hope and your Savior right now. Paul says this in Romans 6, 4 through 5. He says, We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. For if we have been united with him in his death like his, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. So if it's true, and it's the only way the world and the nations, and humanity, and you personally can be saved, what's stopping you today from naming Jesus Christ as your Savior and your Lord? And this is how you do it. You confess your sins, and you repent, and you believe in your heart, and you confess with your mouth that Christ has died for your sins, and God has raised Jesus of Nazareth from the dead. Will you pray with me? Father in heaven, we do trust this message today. We confess the fact that we are sinners and we cannot save ourselves. We confess what Paul said is of first importance, that Christ the King, the Son of David, the anointed Messiah, died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that He was buried in Joseph of Arimathea's tomb and raised according to the Scriptures. And we trust in that message and we trust in the Holy Spirit to now give us new life. And we have the expectation of the glories of heaven when we die, of new resurrected bodies at the end of the world, and of a new heaven and a new creation when you come in glory. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.